From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. House Speaker Mike Johnson has unveiled a two-part plan to avoid a government shutdown. Find out more. And a key indicator is starting to point toward a recession. But the economist who invented that rule says it's complicated. Plus, you know, there's always the puzzle. But this week, we visit the man behind our favorite word game. In the eighth grade, mm-hmm. when asked to write a paper on what I wanted to do with my life, mm-hmm. I said, a professional puzzle maker. <laughs> Can you imagine a kid <laughs> deciding that is his life, life's desire? It's Sunday, November 12th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. There's been an international outcry over conditions at Gaza's main hospital where Israel's military says it's been battling Hamas fighters. Local health officials say the hospital has run out of fuel and that at least two babies have died there after incubators lost power. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Tel Aviv. The head of the International Committee for the Red Cross says the unbearably desperate situation at Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital must stop now. The United Nations humanitarian chief says there can be no justification for acts of war in health care facilities. Israel says it's trying to evacuate Gaza's hospitals and accuses Hamas of using human shields. A military spokesman says troops will help move newborn babies out of Al-Shifa today. Those who do evacuate still face Israel airstrikes in southern Gaza. Meanwhile, thousands rallied in Israel last night for the return of about 240 hostages held in Gaza. In a televised speech, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said there would be no ceasefire until all of them are released. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Israel is coming under pressure to agree to a ceasefire. According to the health ministry in Gaza, more than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed since the war began with the Hamas attack six weeks ago that Israel's says left around 1,200 people dead. House Speaker Mike Johnson offering a proposal for a short-term funding bill aimed at keeping the government open past Friday shutdown deadline. But the plan is already facing stiff opposition from both the Biden administration and a handful of House Republicans. Here's NPR's Eric McDaniel. Johnson's two-step proposal, if it passes, would fund some government agencies through mid-January and the rest through early February. But the measure faces stiff headwinds. House Republicans have a vanishingly small majority, and a number of Republicans, including Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, have already announced their opposition. It's unclear if any House Democrats will support the measure, which, though it's free of any conservative policy provisions, has been blasted by the Biden administration, which accuses House Republicans of, quote, wasting precious time with an unserious proposal. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. Sticking with Capitol Hill, the Senate has now confirmed more than 100 women to the federal bench during President Biden's first term. Biden has also elevated five, uh, rather 50 black judges to lifetime appointments, as NPR's Kerry Johnson reports. The White House says diversifying the federal bench has been one of its highest priorities. The Senate has advanced 153 of Biden's picks, including record numbers of women and people of color. The Biden administration has also stressed professional diversity, selecting public defenders and civil rights lawyers, not just former prosecutors. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the new judges better reflect America and they're helping reshape the federal judiciary. Biden has put the first black woman on the Supreme Court, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Vineyard Wind has made its first payment to the town of Nantucket as part of a so-called good neighbor agreement. The Nantucket Current reports that the company deposited its first mitigation payment of just over $2.5 million into an account administered by the Nantucket Community Foundation. The agreement means the town will support the massive offshore wind energy project in exchange Vineyard Wind will give Nantucket $16 million to mitigate the potential historical, cultural, and economic impacts of the turbines. Lab space vacancies in the Boston area have hit a 10-year high. That's according to a new report from the real estate firm Collier's. The vacancy rate is 11.7 percent, and for the first time on record, more than 5 million square feet of lab space is on the market. Just two years ago, that number was 300,000 square feet. Many of the vacant properties are the newest ones. Nearly a third of lab space finished this year has yet to be leased. Here's a way to experience an old New England tradition. Permits to cut down Christmas trees in White Mountain National Forest are now available. Reporter Mara Haplamazian has more. The permits are $5, and they allow each household to cut down one tree from somewhere in the National Forest. The Forest Service says before leaving home, people should be sure to measure the space where they plan to put the tree and make sure they have space in their vehicle for transporting it. Trees taken from White Mountain National Forest must be a maximum of six inches in diameter at chest height. Chainsaws are not allowed. Visitors must cut down the trees by hand. Trees cannot be taken from private land, wilderness areas, experimental forests, or places near campgrounds or other recreation areas. Forest officials remind visitors to dress warmly, bring extra food and water, and an overnight survival kit. Permits are available online or at White Mountain National Forest offices. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplomazian. It is 31 degrees in Boston, sunny today, and highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for joining us today. The border of Lebanon and Israel has become a battle zone again as tensions rise during the Israel-Hamas war to the south. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for joining us today. We're actually going to get into politics. We are just five days away from a potential shutdown. Congress needs to figure out a way to fund the government before a looming deadline. But House Republicans have yet to agree on a spending bill amongst themselves. And things keep getting murkier by the day. And that's just one of the stories happening on this busy week in politics. We're joined now by NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Good morning, Asma. Good morning, Aisha. Okay, so the new House Speaker... Mike Johnson introduced a two-step stopgap spending bill yesterday. What do we know about that? Well, the new speaker is under a severe time crunch. Uh, The government could shut down by the end of the day, November 17th, if Congress cannot figure out a way to pass a new spending bill this week. And so there are reports, as you mentioned, about this 
two-step stopgap funding measure. There's not a whole lot of details, but really, Aisha, what it would do is it would extend government funding for some agencies up to one date and then set a separate funding deadline for others. You know, the White House has made it clear last week that it would not accept this mechanism broadly, that it wouldn't even, you know, accept a supplemental funding bill that provides money for Israel but not for Ukraine. And last night after these House Republican plans were reported, the White House issued a statement saying that this proposal is a, quote, recipe for more Republican chaos and more shutdowns. A White House official told NPR that the Office of Management and Budget has already started telling agencies to plan for a shutdown. Uh, This potential government shutdown comes as President Biden is slated to travel to California and meet with China's uh, President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the APEC summit this week, which is really a critical meeting, right? Mm -hmm. So because China is a big concern for people on the left and the right in this country. That's right. And, you know, this is the first face-to-face meeting that Biden and Xi are having in more than a year. And experts and, I would say, frankly, White House officials are not necessarily expecting any sort of grand plans from this meeting. But the goal is to stabilize a somewhat shaky relationship. And, you know, Biden has really wanted to focus more of his foreign policy on China. But the wars in Ukraine and and now uh, in the Gaza Strip have clearly altered those plans. What I will say, Aisha, is that the White House has often been eager to portray split screens and show these pictures of president governing and focusing on policy in contrast to the disorder uh, amongst House Republicans on Capitol Hill. And I'd imagine they're going to try to play that up again this week. That's NPR White House correspondent Asma Hala. Thank you, Asma. My pleasure. Is a recession on the way? If so, how would we know? Well, there are a number of measures. Inverted yields curves can often, but not always, predict a recession. All indications for potential recession. Where the outlook for hiring and capex spending turning decidedly negative in the NAVE survey. There's also GDP growth, corporate profits, gold, and the SOM rule. Claudia SOM is a former Federal Reserve economist who came up with the rule, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. Great, thank you. And because this isn't as straightforward as you may think, we're also joined by NPR Chief Economics Correspondent Scott Horsley. Great to be with you. Claudia Som, let's start with you. How does the Som rule work? What I do is look at the monthly unemployment rate. It's a widely watched uh, measure. Take the three-month average and then you compare the most recent value, which is right now 3.8%. And then we compare it to the low over the prior 12 months. That's 3.5%. And if it were to be a half a percentage point or more, we're in a recession in the early months. Right now, it's three-tenths of a percentage point. That's worrisome. Any rise in the unemployment rate is worrisome because it often keeps going. Not always. That's what I look at is what's happening with jobs, what's happening with workers. is highly accurate all the way back to the 1970s. And Claudia, can you talk a little about the the thinking behind this rule, because this isn't just some, you know, technical yardstick, right? The idea is when there's this jump in unemployment, it means generally people are losing jobs. They don't have the money to spend. That means businesses don't have as many customers and that leads to more job cuts, right? Is that how it usually plays out? Absolutely. That piece is the demand piece of a recession. It's consumers not getting the paychecks, not having the spending that leads to fewer paychecks. That's not always the dynamic. And frankly, that's not entirely the dynamic in the economy right now. 
and yet there's there's a real logic and you can see how these feedback loops can get going and then a small increase in the unemployment rate this five tenths percentage point it keeps going you said uh the the demand side is not all of what's going on in the current economy it's always dangerous to think this time is different but what are some differences in what's happening in the economy right now compared to some of those past periods when we did see a half point jump in the average unemployment rate and it did signal the start of a recession right so if you go all the way back to when the pandemic began the global economy largely shut down and then what we learned is when we threw it back into gear it's a lot harder and takes longer to get back on track to get the factories back open to get the supply chains working again for the workers to get back to work what's going on under the hood is very different this time than in past recessions and so we have to be very careful with all of those indicators named in the introduction the yield curve the right you just line it up we have to be really careful because this time legitimately has some different aspects to it and we got to watch that it's really important and is a big part of that rise in the unemployment rate not people losing jobs but rather people coming off the sidelines and entering or re-entering the workforce we have seen amazing gains in women's employment black men who are another often marginalized group have some historic increases disabled worker right it's just you name it we've seen workers coming back but it comes with the unemployment rate rate rising and there's no guarantee that like that we really have these jobs catching up so i could be wrong this could be much more demand and we really are headed into the recession though having watched this recovery very carefully i i feel confident that there's a supply disruption that's still working itself out so to be clear are we close to the point where the som rule alarm bells are sounding yes we are the som rule right now shows 3 tenths of an increase and a half a percentage point would be triggering the som rule and so are are we in a recession or not in a recession? I know I, I feel like I'm asking that every other week. We are not in a recession. And that goes far beyond the SOM rule, the indicator I have by the unemployment rate. A recession is a broad-based contraction in economic activity. You need to see consumer spending fall off and income and production. And if you look across the U.S. economy, we are not in a broad-based contraction. Are there measures in the economy that are concerning to you right now? You look at delinquencies, people who've fallen behind on paying their credit cards, paying their auto loans. Those stimulus checks, they stop coming, right? So the delinquency rates have started rising. You see them now in a place that's about where they were before the pandemic. Do they keep rising or do they level out? Right. And that's where it's we have a lot of measures like that in the labor market. Same thing with the unemployment rate. This could all turn out well. And there's a story to be told about how it could a story based on data. And yet that's not that's not history. Is it possible that there are no more reliable rules of thumb because things have been thrown so out of whack by the pandemic and like that kind of once in a, not even a lifetime, once in a century, hopefully, Lord willing, type of thing happening? 
rules of thumb are great. Like we we want we want some guidance, particularly in the most of uncertain times. And yet my rule, the yield curve, two quarters decline in GDP, you name it, whatever's been attached to recessions as rules of thumb in the past, it's an empirical pattern. But empirical patterns are not laws of nature. Rules are made to be broken, right? So it, it could be happening now. That doesn't mean that we throw all of this out when we go forward from here. I mean, recessions will come. This whole episode has been a reminder the the guideposts we use never were and absolutely aren't in this moment sufficient. That's former Federal Reserve economist Claudia Som. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. And NPR Scott Horsley. Scott, always great to have you on. Good to be with you. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. And coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the story on the limited or non-existent access to reliable Internet services for many people who live in rural areas. However, high-speed Internet expansions are underway. That and much more still to come here on Weekend Edition Sunday. There's nothing like live radio. With the WBUR app, you can listen live wherever you are. Get the free WBUR app today. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The White House is rejecting the two-step stopgap funding proposal from House Republicans, calling it a recipe for more Republican chaos and more shutdowns. The proposal was unveiled by House Speaker Mike Johnson this weekend. A temporary spending bill must be signed by President Biden by this Friday's deadline to avert a partial government shutdown. Former President Donald Trump is pushing for his federal trial on election interference to be televised. At a campaign rally this weekend, Trump said he wants the trial to be seen by everybody in the world. Federal rules, though, prohibit broadcasting court proceedings. And former NFL player D.J. Hayden was among six people killed in a car crash in Houston this weekend. The crash happened early yesterday when a car sped through a red light. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The scale of deaths in the conflict between Israel and Hamas fighters has led to accusations of war crimes on both sides. NPR International Affairs correspondent Jackie Northam says determining whether there are violation of the laws of war is not so clear-cut. The law of war, or international humanitarian law, is a collection of treaties that, among other things, are meant to limit mass civilian casualties during a time of war. For many people, some actions during the current conflict between Israel and Hamas are undeniable violations of the laws of war. Hamas's surprise attack on October 7th, which left at least 1,200 people dead, hostage-taking by the militant group, and using civilians as human shields. Oh, it's, it's so completely illegal. David Sheffer is a former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues in the Clinton administration and helped create the International Criminal Court. There is no justification under the Geneva Conventions, under customary international law, to use civilians as human shields during combat. That's a strictly illegal tactic that Hamas is is using. But Israel's response to the Hamas attack has also led to accusations of war crimes, especially when it comes to civilian deaths. According to the health ministry in Gaza, at least 11,000 people have died from Israeli attacks over the past month, including thousands of children. But Sheffer, now a professor at Arizona State University, believes it's too early to say Israel is violating laws of war because individual strikes and the decision-making behind them will have to be examined on their own. When someone sees whole blocks being destroyed, when someone sees hundreds of Palestinians being rushed to hospitals, all of that evokes in me just a ton of questions about what just happened. What were you doing firing on that building? How many civilians were in that building? Or did you think Hamas was in that building? But whether it's criminal is another very uh, complex determination. Under international law, Israel has the right to defend itself. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Jeffrey Korn, a former senior advisor for the U.S. Army on law of war issues, says that means eliminating Hamas, even if it causes civilian deaths. When you're fighting an enemy that violates the law by consistently using civilians as camouflage, then the judgment of attacking those targets becomes incredibly complicated. Take, for example, the massive Israeli airstrikes recently on Jabalia, a congested refugee camp in Gaza. Israel said it killed a senior Hamas commander, but the attack also left dozens of Palestinians dead and injured. And that's raised questions about proportionality. Korn, now at Texas Tech University, says Israel's military follows a process similar to the U.S. military when determining whether to launch a strike. He says the first thing a commander will ask is if it's a legitimate military target. Then the commander is going to say, what options do I have to reduce the civilian risk? Can I give a warning? 
well, if I give a warning on this target, he's going to go right down underneath the ground and we're going to lose him. It's a judgment call by the commander as to what may be an excessive number of civilian deaths. Omar Shakar, Israel and Palestine director for Human Rights Watch, says the rules on proportionality are not simple mathematical equations. And there are other factors a commander could consider before firing. For example, was it possible for the warring party to take feasible precautions to minimize civilian harm, such as by using a different type of weapon or attacking at a different time that may have resulted in achieving the same military aim without the same collateral impact on civilians. Israel says it is adhering to international law, such as sending warnings and text messages to people in northern Gaza to leave the area. But Shakur says those warnings don't meet the standards of international humanitarian law because of the blockade Israel has imposed on Gaza. He calls that collective punishment, which is prohibited under the law of war. For a warning to be effective, there must be a safe place to go and a safe place to get there. There is no safe place to go in Gaza and no safe way to get anywhere. In addition, the Israeli government has severely curtailed the entrance of aid, food, medicines, water, and uh, this also amounts to a war crime as it deprives the population of life-saving care. Starvation as a weapon of war is also a war crime. The International Criminal Court, or ICC, has active investigations into the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel and ongoing Israeli activities in Gaza, going back to an earlier ground incursion in 2014. David Sheffer says Hamas, by a tangled set of circumstances, is bound by the ICC. Israel, on the other hand, is not a member of the ICC, which Sheffer says could create a problem for investigators. I would be very skeptical as to how far the Israelis would go in cooperating with the prosecutor to provide all of the information that would pertain to any particular strike in Gaza. But that won't stop an investigation. War crime tribunals can take years. And in the meantime, the war between Israel and Hamas and the civilian casualties continues. Jackie Northam, NPR News. As mental health care shortages plague communities across the country, many Americans face a difficult question. In the rare cases when someone with untreated mental illness acts violently, what's the best way to keep both the person and the community safe? The debate has fiercely divided one New York City neighborhood in Brooklyn. Samantha Max of member station WNYC reports. Francoise Olivas was walking her daughter home from school with a group of parents one day when they spotted a man who has been charged many times with assaulting, harassing, and groping people in her neighborhood of Greenpoint, Brooklyn. She says he was coming toward them on the street. So we all ran against the light to get to the other side. Olivas says things escalated when the man approached a cyclist who was riding by and straddled her bike. So the cyclist ran a red light. The biker rode away but the parents and their kids were shaken up. According to city officials, the man has gone to jail and psychiatric hospitals dozens of times. Court records show he's also started and stopped treatment for alcoholism. And like half of the people in New York City jails, he has mental illness. Research shows that a tiny fraction of people with serious mental illness commit acts of violence and are actually more likely to be victims. And even when they do, experts say, other factors besides their diagnosis typically drive them to commit those crimes. 
but several recent high-profile incidents have put some people on edge. We have new information tonight in the tragic death of a woman shoved in front of a moving train at the Times Square subway station. In January 2022, a man with schizophrenia pushed Michelle Goh onto the Times Square subway tracks during rush hour, killing her. has been found psychologically unfit to stand trial. People with mental illness have also been harmed themselves. Earlier this year in New York City, a subway rider fatally choked Jordan Neely an unhoused man who he said was acting aggressively toward others on the train. The incident sparked calls for better mental health care. Every state has some sort of law that allows for emergency psychiatric evaluations and involuntary hospitalizations. Many cities, from Eugene, Oregon to Nashville, Tennessee, also have programs to send clinicians to some mental health calls. But these programs and policies have only scratched the surface. The biggest challenge that we see is just the availability of care. Hannah Wesolowski is the chief advocacy officer for the National Association of Mental Illness. There's long wait lists for mental health providers. There is often inability to get care in an insurance network. If somebody needs inpatient care, which is not the first stop, but is the right type of care for some people, it's often not available. Wesolowski says the shortage of resources dates back to the mid-20th century. That's when government-run psychiatric hospitals shut down across the country, and officials promised to provide services in communities instead. But you can't have community mental health care if you don't fund community mental health care. Ibrahim Ayu feels let down by New York City's mental health system. He has schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and he says he's been jailed and hospitalized many times. But Ayu says it's been difficult to get effective treatment, even in psychiatric hospitals. You just sitting there waiting. Then somebody comes by and says, are you feeling suicidal or homicidal? If you say no, he says, then you're released. Ayu says people often label him as mentally ill and don't want to dig any deeper into who he is. He wonders if the man in Brooklyn accused of assaulting people in his neighborhood feels the same way. It's very easy to villainize people that are in the circumstances that me and that gentleman share, but you quite normally, because we have mental illness, we're normally not villains. We're normally just misunderstood. IU wishes people would make more of an effort to build a relationship with the man in Brooklyn and find out what he needs, instead of trying to remove him. For NPR News, I'm Samantha Max in New York. The Netflix documentary, Stamp from the Beginning, starts with a provocative question writer and professor Ibram X. Kendi asks of other Black academics. Can you please tell me, what is wrong with Black people? What is wrong with Black people? Okay, what do you mean by that? What is wrong with Black people? Kendi, who founded the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University, answers by invoking how systemic racism can convince Black people and everyone else that Black people deserve to be marginalized. NPR TV critic and media analyst Eric Deggins has watched Stamp from the beginning and has also been following recent allegations of mismanagement against Kendi at the BU Center. Hi, Eric. Hi. So first, tell us more about this documentary. It's out on Netflix later this month. Yeah, it's this percolating 
primer on the themes in Kendi's award-winning 2016 book of the same name. Now, there's compelling animation, historical photos, interviews with lots of academics, although it might be tough for some people to watch. It's centered on this idea that much of the systemic racism that's directed against Black people was created as an attempt to justify enslavement and exploitation of Black people, not the other way around. And in the film, you know, Kendi speaks of this ruler known as uh, Prince Henry of Portugal who he says turned to enslaving black people from Africa in the mid-1400s instead of Europeans because it was harder for them to run away. Here's a clip. Let's listen. Prince Henry didn't want to admit he was violently enslaving African people to make money. So he dispatched a royal chronicler by the name of Gomez Arara. Gomez Arara justified his slave trading by stating that Prince Henry was doing it to save souls and that these people in Africa were inferior. So that, Kendi says, is the creation of blackness in which Europeans treat Africans from many different tribes and countries as one inferior race to justify exploiting them. So these are some very complex concepts about race and history. How does this fit with his other work, you know, like his best-selling book, how to be an anti-racist or his ESPN series on sports and race. Well, you know, I've interviewed Kendi for NPR's Life Kit podcast, and at the core of a lot of his work is this idea that racism is a behavior, not just a state of being, that it comes down to choices you make every day. And in Netflix's stamp from the beginning, that means examining these ideas like the myth of Black hypersexuality, which has been invoked throughout history to justify raping Black women or lynching Black men. And after the death of George Floyd in 2020, you know, Kendi gained new prominence speaking on these themes, the themes in how to be an anti-racist. And those ideas are found in so many contemporary issues that it makes sense that Kendi could leverage them into an ESPN project or on racism in sports or this Netflix film. And what about that criticism Kendi ran into following his decision earlier this year to lay off about half the staff at the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University? Where do those allegations of mismanagement stand? Well, the university just released an internal audit finding there were no issues with how the center's finances were handled, which kind of backed up Kendi's contention that the layoffs were not a re result of bad fiscal management. And it also pushes back against some critics who tried to delegitimize his concepts by suggesting he's some kind of fraud. Now, hopefully, this will allow people to focus more on his ideas, which he sums up at the end of Stamp from the Beginning by answering that original question. The only thing wrong with Black people, he says, is that we think something is wrong with Black people. NPR TV critic and media analyst Eric Deggins, thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Millions of Americans still lack access to high-speed internet. That's especially a problem in rural communities. One small town in Wisconsin has been working to solve the problem and is welcoming the latest national push to expand broadband access. Evan Casey of Wisconsin Public Radio reports. Around 700 year-round residents live on Washington Island, which sits off the northern tip of Wisconsin's tourist haven, Door County. Yeah. Courtney and Eric DeJardin have lived on the island for nearly 20 years. 
They own the busy Man's Mercantile General Store, where souvenirs line the walls. The couple love living on an island, but say it doesn't come without its challenges. One of them, slow and spotty internet service. When you got a business like this where you have, you know, mass customers walking in your door at from open till close, and if you don't have any internet service, you don't have any money coming in. A few miles from the store, construction workers high up on a utility pole are unspooling several hundred feet of fiber optic cable designed to go directly into a customer's home. When it's installed, they'll go from having slow and unreliable internet to lightning fast service. The work is part of a new $7 million fiber optic network that's running across the island. Robert Cornell is a manager of the Washington Island Electric Co-op and the driving force behind the project. He likes to drive across the 35 square mile islands and count the homes with the service. It's kind of fun because this is where we started and I can go down the road and I can say, he has it, he has it, they have it, they have it, they have it. We've got them connected and, I, and everybody on this road is connected. In Wisconsin, around a quarter of a million homes and businesses don't have access to internet that can support basic video streaming. Nationally, it's estimated at least 42 million Americans still don't have access to high-speed internet, and more than 20% of them live in rural areas. Now, there are projects in the works like Wisconsin's to narrow the digital divide. In June, the Biden-Harris administration announced over $40 billion in federal grants to support broadband expansion through the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program. Wisconsin got around $1 billion of that money to add to its ongoing efforts, and U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo had a promise when she met with residents of Kenosha County last summer. We are going to make certain that everyone around this table and all your neighbors have high-quality, high-speed, affordable internet when we're done. And Raimondo said a fiber-optic network like the one on Washington Island could be the best solution. We are fiber-first because it's the most foolproof, doesn't mm -hmm. go out in the whiteouts mm -hmm. and the bad weather. So we're, we think it's enough money to do fiber for mostly everyone. It could be several more years until everyone has access across the state though. And as technology continues to evolve, old infrastructure may be a barrier to bring in high speeds to everyone. But for Washington Island residents Michael Gillespie and his wife Danny, the new infrastructure can't come to their home fast enough. Co-op manager Robert Cornell often jokes with Danny about the pace of the project. Cannot wait till the high speed to go to my house. It's coming. It's I keep coming. asking, when is my house? It, it, we move it out a week every time you ask. <laughs> the Washington Island project ending the problems with spotty internet is expected to be completed by the end of 2025. For NPR News, I'm Evan Casey on Washington Island, Wisconsin. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Boston University Police Department and the Suffolk County DA's office are investigating a possible hate crime on campus. The university publication BU Today says someone wrote Free Palestine on the window of the Hillel building last week. The DA's office says the location of the graffiti on a house of worship could mean it rises to the level of a hate crime. 
The Boston Athletic Association half marathon is underway. About 9,000 runners are taking part. The 13.1-mile course begins and ends in Franklin Park. The route proceeds along a big stretch of the Emerald Necklace. In about an hour, it is game time for the New England Patriots. The Pats are taking on the Colts in Frankfurt. This is the Pats' first game in Germany as part of the NFL's international games. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Sunny skies today, highs in the mid-40s, lows in the mid-20s tonight. Increasing clouds tomorrow. Monday's temperatures in the mid-40s. And looking ahead to Tuesday, sunshine, a high around 50. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs. I'm Deepa Fernandez. Sacramento County's DA has taken the unusual step of suing the city for not keeping unhoused people off the streets. He says it's a question of compassion. It's not compassion for those that are living on the streets. We've seen families as well that are unable to go to the park. That's here and now. Listen Monday at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. This week, we have such a special treat for you guys. We are actually in New York right now, visiting our dear friend, Will, who is joining us in person. He is right beside me right now. First time ever. First time ever. He is the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Will, it is nice to finally meet you. It's great to meet you. This is so (laughs) much fun. So much fun. So, Will, you are going to be taking us around this table tennis club, the Westchester Table Tennis Center. Center. And so we're going we're gonna to spend the day together. I'm very excited about that. But first, you know, we got to get down to business. We got to play this puzzle. <laughs> and this week, we are doing things a little bit differently. We're playing with a couple of friends of yours. Will, do you want to introduce them? Yes, uh, it's my friend Josh Wardle. You know him as the inventor of Wordle. And he'll be playing with his partner, Palak Shah. So welcome to the show, Josh and Palak. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. So, Josh, I I mean, I have to say, we have Will Shorts here, and then we have the inventor of Wordle. It's kind of like the Beatles and Rolling Stones (laughs) getting together on one stage. Like, how does this feel to you, Josh? Oh, this feels... This feels amazing, and I also need to, I feel like when it comes to puzzles in our house, including Wordle, Pollock is kind of the brains of the operation, <laughs> really. So, yeah, I don't know what that is. The Beetle, the Stones. Plus the Who. So, so how did the idea of Wordle come to you? 
Well, it came very slowly over the course of about seven years. Uh, I had, I'd had an idea for a game. It's based on an old game called Mastermind. And I wanted to make a game for her. And so over the course of seven years, I built the game for her. It was very bizarre that it then went as viral as it did. And it became this huge thing. So Pollock, we have you to thank for Wordle. <laughs> I'm happy to share it with the world. All right, well, I always ask, are y'all ready to play the puzzle? So I gotta ask this time, are you ready to play the puzzle? Yes. Yes. Take it away, Will. All right, Josh and Pollock, I'm gonna read you some sentences. In each one, find two words that sound like two other words that are synonyms. For example, if I said, I can pair an apple too, you would say pair and two, that P-A-R-E and T-O-O sound like P-A-I-R and T-W-O, which are synonyms. So find the two words that sound like synonyms, and here's number one. My dog's paws got stuck under the car's brake. Pause and break. Oh. <laughs> Pause and break. I like those better. Pause and break. You got yeah. it. Today's spelling lesson is about words with silent E's. Here it is again. Today's spelling lesson is about words with silent E's. I'm struggling to E's think. is definitely one of them. E's, like easy. Today's spelling lesson. Lesson. Lesson, lesson. yeah. To, oh, to lesson, lesson and to E's are well. synonyms. Will, I told you I had to have Pollock here. <laughs> Definitely the brains. In India, several lower castes are in the throes of change. Throes and castes. Throes and castes. Good job. The wild hare has a hankering for bagels and locks. I'll let you. Ha I have it. Look, Josh, I'll let you do it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> uh, hair and locks. Hair and yes. locks. Good job. <laughs> After his shift ended, the worker hied to the bank to cash his paycheck. Uh, that's, Go for it, Josh. Oh, thank you. That's hide and cash. Hide and cash, C-A-C-H-E, oh right. Goodness. Okay, and here's your last one. The seamstress would vary the way she'd sew. I feel like I have three in there. Go for it. <laughs> Give three. Uh, would vary and sews? Uh, very and so, V-E-R-Y and S-O are both uh, our synonyms. So very and so, you got it. Amazing job. So how do you feel? How do you feel, Pollock? Uh, relief. Yeah, I think it's a sense of, it's a sense of relief. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, y'all did a great job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And what member station do you guys listen to? Uh, WNYC and a shout out to KQED that we used to listen to back when we were in Oakland. That's Pollock Shaw and her partner, Josh Wardle, the inventor of Wordle. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you, Will. Thank you. Okay, Will, so I know we're in the middle of a two-week challenge, so remind us what that is. Yes, it's a creative challenge. Name a geographical place, then describe it acrostically using the letters in its name. For example, Albany could be described acrostically as administering legislative business at New York. The place can be anywhere in the world, the U.S. or abroad. Entries will be judged on originality, sense, naturalness of wording, elegance, and overall effect. You may submit up to three entries, and the person who sends the best entry, in my opinion, will play Puzzle on the Air with me next week. 
Okay, so when you have a submission, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Our deadline for entries this week is Wednesday, November 15th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call, and if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Okay, well, let's get to let's let's get to playing some some table tennis or something. <laughs> so before we get into the tour of the table tennis club, which was so much fun, I want to stop here and make a little bit of a confession. Before I started hosting Weekend Edition Sunday, I was very concerned about the puzzle. Will Shorts has been on the show longer than anyone else. People always talked about the puzzle, and I didn't really know if it was for me. I'm not competitive at all, and I don't do crosswords or anything like that in my free time. But what won me over immediately was the devotion of the audience and the commitment of Will Shorts. And that was totally on display at the Table Tennis Club, which Will has co-owned and operated since 2009. At the front of the club, there are these big display cases filled with table tennis memorabilia. And I spied a black and white picture of a young man playing the game. Wait, now, are these pictures of you playing? That is me in high school, so Wait, I'll tell you. Wait, picture? Okay, this that, is a black and white picture. That's me on the left, the guy in the white you shirt. You on the left, okay, so it's a black and white picture, yeah. so we see a young Will Shorts now, and here you in a button-up. That's what I expected <laughs> you, you to be in. You had to wear a shirt in the, when I was in high school, you had to wear a college shirt. You had to wear like shirt. a collared yeah. shirt. T-shirt's not he's allowed. He's in a collared shirt yeah. and slacks. And this black and white picture, and he's playing. Now, were you beating this guy real bad? Well, I was beating him. And then (laughs) came time for the puzzle master to teach me a little bit about his other passion. Just don't call it ping pong. Okay, here we go. Uh Okay. (laughs) Oh wait. Okay. Yes. I've only played a few times before, but with Will's coaching, I got better. Like for real. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Gentle show, two in a row, three in a row. Oh! (laughs) After he was done schooling me on table tennis, Will and I sat down to talk about what you know him best for, being New York Times puzzle editor, and before that, Weekend Edition's puzzle master. Will Shorts has promised to puzzle us on Weekend Edition. He is senior editor of Games Magazine. And, Will, you're not exactly going to be doing crossword puzzles, my favorite art form, on the radio for us. But you are going to do logic puzzles, other sorts of things, huh? I have an original word puzzle for you today Uh relating to oxymorons. Oh, my favorite thing. So, as you know, Susan Stanberg started the show in January 1987. Her idea was that Weekend Edition Sunday should be the radio equivalent of a Sunday newspaper. You got your news and culture and sports and everything. We all know what's the most important part of the Sunday (laughs) paper, and it's the puzzle. So, uh, inquiries made their way to me, and the challenge was, how do you do puzzles on the radio? Most puzzles are written, and you can't do that on radio. And furthermore, most puzzles require you to sit and think with periods of silence, which you can't do on radio. radio. So I came up with this uh, 
idea of quick word okay. teasers. So, but how does it feel to be to be 37 years in? How's how that? does that feel? Well, it feels great. Uh, I love coming up with new ideas every week. I love the people I come in contact with through puzzles. And you know they're self-selected. Yeah. In order to get on the show, you have to solve a challenge. Yeah. You have to have something on the ball to get on the show. There's a lot of people who listen to Weekend Edition Sunday. I'm imagining people lazing in bed yeah. or making breakfast yes. or driving to church. Yeah. And that means that they're not writing anything down. Yeah. So... Every challenge puzzle is something you can hold in your head and think about and write down later if you want. Okay, so what is it that you love about games so much and like these puzzles so much? Um, I feel like I'm a long distance entertainer. I can turn anything into a game. Mm -hmm. I remember once, my dad was not a very playful person, but I remember once when we were on a trip out west and we were driving. Uh, and we came to the top of a hill like in the Rocky Mountains and you could see the top of a hill you know miles and miles away and he stopped the car mm -hmm. and as in, uh, challenged everyone in the family to guess how many miles it was to the top of the other hill oh. what a cool thing yeah. and my guess was way off but uh, I'm the sort of person who can turn anything into a game like was there ever a point where you thought I don't know that I can make a living with this yeah well in the eighth grade, mm -hmm. when asked to write a paper on what I wanted to do with my life, mm -hmm. I said, a professional puzzle maker. <laughs> Can you imagine a kid <laughs> deciding that is his life, life's desire? <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to do. Uh -huh. And uh, I was willing to live in an attic somewhere and churn out my little puzzles, you know, for $10 <laughs> each and try to scrape out a living. So that's why, uh, you know, I have the world's only college degree in puzzles. What did you name it? Enigmatology. Oh, enigmatology. Okay, enigmatology. And I did not make up that word. It's an old word. Originally, it meant the study of riddles. It goes back to the 18th century. I updated the word to mean puzzles of all sorts. Okay. So when I studied at college, all my courses in my major were independent learning, okay. and I'd prof find professors who'd work with me, and mm -hmm. you know, if I was studying English puzzles, math mm -hmm. puzzles in the math department, and so on. And uh, so that's how I got my, I got my, degree. the world's only degree in that. Talking and to Will, it's clear that puzzles are his first love. But he also had this light about him that seemed to come from the new love that has transformed his life. We went to Will's home, a short drive from the Table Tennis Center, and we got to see another side of the Puzzle Master. Well, let's talk about this, because we talked a little bit about your love, you know, when you got married. But you came out at, an, you know, in the New Yorker article. Um, what made you want to do that? Uh, they had a great interview with, at the New Yorker, and uh, it was all about puzzles. And near the end, the writer asked me, you know, how's life? And I said, uh, life is really good. In fact, uh, for the first time in my life, I have a partner. Mm -hmm. And uh, just left it at that. Um, and I can imagine the uh, writer going back to her uh, staff and thinking, we can't leave the interview like that. We have to find <laughs> out more. Yeah. So uh, she called and said, hey, can we? Can I ask you s some more questions? And that's when uh, I just uh, explained everything about myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I 
and probably the first person who ever outed himself in the New Yorker. <laughs> well, you may not be. I seem like the New Yorker is a good place to do it. It's it. a great yeah, place. I thought yes. it was a very classy place it's, to it's do it. It's a very, very classy place to do it. So a lot of people will listen to this and they'll go, well, Will, why? I mean, at, at age 70, you're just finding love. Why not have a partner before now? I mean, that's a really long time. Yeah. Uh, at first, I was in denial. And and then I tried to force myself to like women. And I think by the time I was in my early 30s, I accepted the way I was. But a gay lifestyle wasn't something that I wanted. And I didn't need it. I have a wonderful job, lots of friends. I just live a full life. And then when I was 69, this uh, guy came into my life who I'm crazy about, and he's crazy about me. And you really didn't date at all, because I think that's what some people may not understand. People may be like, well, but you was like, you know, you probably had some, what they call a sneaky link. <laughs> but you didn't have no sneaky links or nothing. You were really by yourself. See, I've dated uh, women over the years, uh, and uh, I've hurt women that way. Mm. Um, and uh, I had a girlfriend then, and our first date, I told her, I'm really attracted to men. And she said, that's okay. I never felt in love. You know, mm -hmm. it felt nice and comfortable. Um, but that's not sparks. That's not fire. It was not sparks, no. And you got the fire now. Yeah, so yeah. Now the perfect guy thing. in the world yeah. for me. Mm -hmm. So you think it's the perfect match? Yes. So do you look at it as things happen the way they should have? Or do you look at it as like, well, I regret what it took to get here. I wish I hadn't have been alone that long. Or do you look at it like, well, you know, everything happened the way that it should have. And I met him when I was ready. Yes, it's the latter. Okay. I met my partner when I was ready. I have no regrets. I mean, it worked out perfectly for both of us. Not to be too corny, but sometimes the hardest puzzle to crack is how to love yourself. I'm so happy that Will has figured it out. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. And I'm Will Shorts. Ah. <laughs> Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Join us at City Space next month for a conversation with Chef Clancy Miller about her new cookbook called For the Culture, Phenomenal Black Women and Femmes in Food. That's Monday, December 4th. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting The Saw Doctors on Friday, July 12th and Saturday, July 13th. Tickets at MGMFenwayMusicHall.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Maeve Higgins had a great idea for a hit nature show. It's called Bear With Me. You just do normal things, but there's a bear with you the whole time. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for this week's news quiz where celebrity DJ Steve Aoki joins us as we do our normal things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. In this hour, our colleague Jane Araf takes us to southern Lebanon, where Israel's war with Gaza has set off violence and unrest. And learning is everything. If you have to leave persons who are illiterated, then problems will be increased more and more. And the Vatican has removed a conservative Texas bishop who was critical of Pope Francis. Plus, we talked to author Gabriel Bump about his novel, The New Naturals, and what it takes to find hope in a world full of chaos. It's Sunday, November 12th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Medical facilities in northern Gaza are facing a dire situation as Israeli forces battle Hamas militants. Several hospitals say they're running out of water and food. Dr. Mohammed Kandil is at Nasser Hospital. The hospital have nothing to do with this conflict. The medical teams working inside the hospital, directly in the ICU, in the operation theater, they are treating patients have nothing to do with this complex political issue. The separate Al-Quds hospital is reported to have shut down and health officials in Gaza say thousands of medics, patients and displaced people are trapped with no power and few supplies in Shifa Hospital, Gaza's largest. Israel's military says there is a safe corridor for civilians to leave Shifa and that they will assist in evacuating vulnerable babies today. Palestinians say at least two newborns have died and dozens are at risk. Thousands of protests are expected to be on the streets of San Francisco as Asia-Pacific leaders gather for a summit meeting this week. NPR's John Ruich reports a focus will be on a meeting slated for Wednesday between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping. The meeting will be the first interaction between the leaders of the world's top two economies in a year. Their last face-to-face was on the sidelines of a G20 meeting in Indonesia last November. U.S. officials say the main goals are to stabilize U.S.-China ties, expand dialogue, and help keep a competitive relationship from sliding into conflict. There is friction across the board. Relations nosedived after an alleged Chinese spy balloon was spotted floating over the United States in February. Since the summer 
summer, though, both sides have been taking steps to re-engage. Analysts aren't expecting big breakthroughs, but say if the two leaders can draw a line under the relationship, it could help keep things under control next year, when tensions are sure to heat up around presidential elections in Taiwan and the United States. John Ruich, NPR News, San Francisco. United Auto Workers at General Motors, Ford and Stellantis continue to vote on whether to ratify tentative deals with those companies. The workers stand to get substantial raises after a historic six-week strike. NPR's Camila Dombanowski reports on what those contract wins mean for everyone else. It is so expensive to get a car right now that it might be hard for companies to raise prices much more. That could help limit the sting for buyers. Now, from the automaker's perspective, these deals are a headwind, specifically for the Detroit Three. But executives have expressed confidence about their future profits. Tom Narayan at RBC Capital put it this way. Look, it's not a positive to have to pay more wage increases, but I think they expected it, right? Then, of course, there are the workers, for whom a wage increase is very much a positive, and the deal is expected to push wages up even for auto workers who aren't in the union. Camila Dominowski, NPR News. And from Washington, this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Andover educators and the town school committee spent hours in negotiations yesterday, but failed to reach an agreement on a new contract. The teachers went on strike Friday with demands including better pay and more sick time and paid family leave. Teachers are legally not allowed to strike in Massachusetts, but several districts' teachers have done so in the past couple years. Andover teachers have said they hope to have students back in the classroom tomorrow. Massachusetts officials are encouraging low-income residents to start applying for fuel assistance before the winter gets underway. The state's low-income home energy assistance program launched for the season November 1st. It covers a portion of heating costs for qualifying families. Claire Higgins is executive director of Community Action Pioneer Valley, which distributes aid in western Massachusetts. And she says last year, demand was high. I would expect that we're going to see at least the same amount, if not more, because some of the pandemic relief that people have been getting, for instance, the increased uh, tax credit for children, et cetera, are not as available anymore. Higgins says even though the state program does not cover the entire heating bill, participants using gas or electric utilities will be protected from having their heat cut off for non-payment. About 9,000 runners are taking to the roads today for this year's Boston Athletic Association Half Marathon. The 13.1-mile course begins and ends in Franklin Park, and the route proceeds along a big stretch of the Emerald Necklace. Drivers should expect road closures in the area until about 10 this morning. The New England Patriots are playing the Colts in Frankfurt this morning. This is the Pats' first game in Germany as part of the NFL's international games. The game starts in about 25 minutes. It's 35 degrees in Boston, sunny today with highs in the mid-40s. Overnight lows dropping to the mid-20s. For your Monday, increasing clouds, highs tomorrow in the mid-40s. And looking ahead to Tuesday, sunshine, a high around 50. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for joining us today. The border of Lebanon and Israel has become a battle zone again as tensions rise during the Israel-Hamas war to the south. Tens of thousands have evacuated on both sides, flurries of rockets or artillery from the Israeli military and Hezbollah or other military or other militias have taken lives on both sides, too. NPR's Jane Araf had talked to, Le- to Lebanese, bracing for more violence in a land that's scenic, historic, and dangerous. Here in the ancient city of Tyre, history repeats itself in the despair of families displaced by war. 11,000 people have fled their villages to this district. Almost 1,000 of them with no other refuge, but schools. At one of these shelters, the Tyre Technical School, aid workers try to distract anxious children with stuffed toys and face painting. Hassan Asayed, a small boy who's trying to be brave, chose a lion for his face. Standing next to his mother, the 10-year-old says they left because he and his sisters were terrified by the airstrikes. Fighting between the Iran-backed militia Hezbollah and Israel has intensified since the start of the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. Hassan and his family have been living here for almost a month since they left their home and their fields. Hassan's father, Mustafa Sayed, says his family has farmed the land for 200 years. But this year... There's no harvest. It burned. He says the soil and the water have been contaminated by white phosphorus. Amnesty International says the Israeli army has fired the chemical, which by international convention is not supposed to be used in civilian areas, into Lebanon. Israel denies it. Even the crops we were supposed to plant in winter, wheat and barley, we have to wait until next year after the rain comes and cleans the soil. He shows us the bare, empty classroom he and his children live in with another family. Mustafa is 53, and he says he's lived through three wars before this one. Up a flight of stairs, students now sharing their school with displaced families are learning car mechanics from a teacher at the blackboard. Line of action. Line of action. The school's chairman, Mohammed Ali Jaber, says he worries about the displaced children who had to leave school and the risk of a generation that can't read or write. And learning is everything. If you have to leave persons who are illiterated, then problems will be increased more and more. It's not new things here in Lebanon. I ask him why there have been so many wars. You have to ask the capitals of the world, not us. In a building nearby, a stream of displaced villagers arrived to get blankets and foam mattresses. A tired-looking official, Mustafa Basma, says in the last hour, more than 40 people have come. Among them is Hussein Abdul Hussein Hussein. He's 92 years old. He can quote chapter and verse from the decrees more than a century ago that carved up the Middle East between France and Britain. Since Israel was created in 1948, it has fought two wars and countless battles with Lebanon and powerful militias. 
Israel occupied South Lebanon for 18 years before it withdrew in 2000. After 48, we were displaced about 20 times. Every time Israel felt like it, it would throw rockets at us, and we would pick ourselves up and leave. Many older people say they are used to this. But a distressed 49-year-old mother who asks us to use just her familiar name, Umajid, breaks down in tears as she carries two mattresses to a car. The United Nations has forced us, and the President of the United States forced us, and the spineless Arabs forced us into this. Our path is the path of resistance. We are with Gaza, even if our homes are destroyed and our children die. But just a mile away is the idyllic scene of the ruins of the ancient port, Tyr was once the most important port city in the Mediterranean. All of it is listed as a World Heritage Site. Ali Bedawi, who has been the site director for 20 years, says not only has the war scared tourists away, an archaeological team was pulled out by the French government. These areas always have a sensitive situation. Because now you can go and you can see and you can, there is some bombardment. You can hear it and you can see it. He says even if the war ends now, it will take two or three years for tourists to come back to the storied seashore. I'm sitting on a concrete wall in front of the sparkling water of this bay in the Mediterranean. There's a man fishing in the distance near a Lebanese flag and snorkelers. Hi. One of them gets out of the water. Come and see, he tells us. We squeeze through a hole in a rusty gate. He shows us what look like antique coins, Byzantine crosses, and other artifacts he says he's been finding for almost 40 years. Mm. He asks us to call him by his nickname, Bahar, which means sailor. And he shows us where he was beaten in Israeli prisons when he was a Lebanese militia fighter during the Israeli occupation of Lebanon. That was in 1985, and he says he spent one year and a month in Israeli detention after he was captured, before he was released in a prisoner exchange. What do we need with blood? What do we need with war? But if Israel attacks us, we will defend ourselves. And then, almost drowned out by the waves, the sound of explosions as Israel attacks. Look. Look, on top of that hill, Bahar says, they're hitting us. There's smoke rising. He says they don't hear the outgoing Lebanese rockets, just the incoming ones from Israel. But it won't deter him from snorkeling every day. That's the way it is on Lebanon's coast near the Israeli border. Jane Araf, NPR News, entire Lebanon. The Vatican has removed from office an outspoken conservative U.S. bishop who's been openly critical of Pope Francis. Until yesterday, Joseph Strickland had served as a bishop in eastern Texas for more than a decade. Joining me now to talk about what happened and what this removal means is NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. So let's start with Joseph Strickland. Who is he? Well, Strickland was, until Saturday, the bishop of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. He served in that position since he was named a bishop by Pope Benedict back in 2012. And he's used his platform ever since Pope Francis was elected in 2013 
to criticize the current pope, criticize very publicly Francis's moves to make the church more open, open to people who felt alienated from the Catholic Church, including divorced Catholics and LGBTQ Catholics. Here's Strickland uh, speaking on a conservative Catholic podcast called Pints with Aquinas. I think we've got to be clear about where the disorders are because we're living in a time when the disorder is carrying the day. Recently, Strickland criticized the Pope for holding a large meeting at the Vatican last month at which issues such as women in ministry were openly discussed. He even went so far as to say on social media that Pope Francis was undermining the faith. And now the Vatican decided to remove him from office. How did that come about? Well, earlier this year, the Vatican launched an investigation into how Strickland was leading his diocese in Texas. Two other bishops went there and interviewed lots of people, observed how the place was being run. Now, he'd been under pressure to resign, but repeatedly said he was under a mandate to lead from the previous pope, Benedict, who appointed him. And when formally asked to resign just last week, he refused. Then, yesterday, the Vatican issued a very brief statement, saying, quote, the Holy Father has removed Bishop Joseph E. Strickland from the pastoral care of the Diocese of Tyler. Now, in the interim, the Vatican has appointed the Bishop of Austin, Texas, to oversee the Tyler Diocese, and it's likely Francis will appoint a more like-minded bishop in the coming months. And what reaction have we seen so far from this move? Well, Strickland has been a popular voice for conservative Catholics. He has a big social media following, a radio show, a website. He often appears on other conservative Catholic TV, radio shows, podcasts. And within hours of the news that he was removed, many of those YouTube channels and other social media feeds began speaking out in support of Strickland. They felt he was holding firm to the true Catholic faith. But of course, there is nothing they can really do other than say they're upset. The Vatican has made its decision. So what does this move from the Vatican and Pope Francis say about what's going on in Catholicism today? Well, I think it speaks to a divide among U.S. Catholics and the wider culture wars in the U.S. There are some very conservative, traditional, outspoken leaders in the church, and they have a following. But anyone who's watched the Catholic Church for the last decade also knows that Pope Francis is extremely popular, popular with women, popular with young people. He's brought new life to the church, and he's done so through openness to reforms that make those traditionalists nervous. With Strickland's removal from office, Pope Francis has demonstrated that he has the final word on who gets to lead Catholics. That's NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. Thank you so much. You're welcome. listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 coming up in about 10 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR. You'll hear about a new Amazon Prime member benefit, discounted subscriptions to primary care, and you'll explore what ventures like that signal for patients and the business of getting health care. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. It's 35 degrees in Boston with sunny skies today and highs in the mid-40s. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. 
Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. House lawmakers are reviewing the text of a short-term government spending bill that Republicans released last night. The White House calls it an extreme Republican shutdown proposal. It's a two-step measure that would extend funding for some federal agencies through mid-January and others until early February. The U.S. military is investigating the crash of a military aircraft in the eastern Mediterranean. A statement says the aircraft went down Friday evening during a training mission and there was no sign of hostile activity. And soccer star Megan Rapino's final game as a professional player came to an early end last night. She was forced to leave the NWSL's championship in the first few minutes with a suspected torn Achilles tendon. Gotham FC won the title over Rapino's well reign, two goals to one. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers or at smartmouth.com. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Hundreds of thousands of protesters marched through the center of London yesterday, calling on Israel to stop bombing Gaza. The demonstration, which was largely pro-Palestinian, was by far the biggest in Britain since the war began. It was also the most controversial. It coincided with Britain's Armistice Day, commemorating the end of the First World War. Senior government officials wanted the march banned. NPR's Philip Reeves joins us now from the UK. Hi, Phil. Hi. So how did the march play out on the ground? Well, the police say roughly 300,000 people took part. Uh, the organizers say that number was closer to 800,000. Either way, it was huge. People came from across the country, many brandished Palestinian flags and signs accusing Israel of genocide. There were men and women, young and old, and also children. They gathered in Hyde Park and then they marched through the heart of London, ending up outside the US Embassy. It was tense and for some also highly emotional. Uh, among the marchers was Yasmin Hussein, who was there with her family. I'm here for the people of Palestine, for the children of Palestine, for the vulnerable of Palestine, for the elderly of Palestine. I'm just saying, please stop, just stop, please, please. Tell us about concerns over the march taking place on Armistice Day. 
Well, some people thought it was disrespectful to do this on a day marking the end of World War One, in which the British, remember, suffered huge losses. Every year there's a ceremony with two minutes silence at London's National War Memorial, the Cenotaph, that passed peacefully. Uh, the march itself was also overwhelmingly peaceful, although police say they're investigating some possible hate crimes, and at one point a small breakaway group fired fireworks at them. Many marchers argued that there was nothing at all disrespectful about holding it on armistice day. In fact, the reverse. This is Adnan Ali, a lawyer from London. Armistice Day was about celebrating a ceasefire. All we're calling for is a ceasefire and to the end of hostilities and violence against children, women and innocent civilians. I really don't think there's anything controversial and I think our politicians are exceptionally reckless in stirring up hatred and division amongst our communities. What does he mean by that about, quote, uh, politicians stirring up hatred and, div- and division? Well, this is about Suella Braverman, Britain's Home Secretary or Interior Minister. Last week, she called pro-Palestinian protests hate marches, uh, which were done by, in her words, pro-Palestinian mobs. Her opponents say she's stirring up division for personal political gain at a time of dangerously heightened tensions. Uh, Now some of them are also blaming her for inciting violent right-wing counter-protests that also happened in London yesterday. The police spent most of the day stopping counter-protesters from getting amongst the marches and say they faced what they described as extraordinary and deeply concerning violence from some of these counter-protesters. They say most of them were soccer hooligans, uh, some of them were drunk, and in the end, nine police wound up getting injured. And during the day overall, there were more than 120 arrests, most of these counter-protesters. NPR's Philip Reeves, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. In Hong Kong, the jailing of pro-democracy activists and opposition politicians in recent years has made headlines. But the space for free speech has shrunk across the board, including in the city's universities. NPR's John Ruich has the story of the end of one professor's career in the city. Rowena He was just a teenager when this happened in June of 1989. I'm Scott Simon. The developing story of the day is that Chinese troops have opened fire on some of the tens and thousands of demonstrators in Tiananmen Square. Today is Saturday, June 3rd, 1989. He was not in Beijing on that chaotic night, but she had taken part in the protests in her hometown of Guangzhou in southern China. And the experience would shape her life, even if she didn't know it at the time. I think that shadow of June 4th, 1989, was always following me. It followed her to college and lingered in the background as she worked in finance for a few years. After 1989, just like anyone else, I learned to lie in order to survive. But when the chance came almost a decade later, she emigrated to Canada. She enrolled in graduate school and became an expert in modern Chinese history. The 1989 protests and exiled dissident community, taboo topics inside mainland China, are her specialty and her passion. I think I make that commitment with those people of my generation. Sorry, give me a moment. I, I think that I promise them I'm going to keep your silence voices heard. I would regain those voices that were so violently silenced in 1989. After teaching stints at Harvard, Wellesley, and St. Michael's College, she had the opportunity to move again, this time closer to home. She joined the history department at one of Hong Kong's most prestigious institutions, the Chinese University of Hong Kong. 
It was the summer of 2019, and this was happening. A rash of huge and at times violent anti-government protests were shaking the former British colony. He says she did not take part in the demonstrations, but she supported her students who were involved. I know that at that time everyone was willing to die for freedom and all of these things, but as someone who studied Tiananmen who survived 1989, I do not want that to happen. In mid-2020, with the pandemic raging, Beijing tightened the noose, imposing a tough national security law on Hong Kong. Activists and pro-democracy politicians were jailed. He kept teaching, though, and stayed close to her students. Jeffrey Wasserstrom, a historian at the University of California, Irvine, says in pre-national security law Hong Kong, nobody would have thought twice of her decision. It used to be that people who were really top scholars in institutions and other places doing cutting-edge work on sensitive subjects related to China would take up jobs at Hong Kong universities. But the ground was shifting. Last July, while waiting for her Hong Kong work visa to be renewed, she left for Texas for a fellowship. But the visa never came. She got a rejection letter in late October. And as a result, her university terminated her contract. The Hong Kong government insists that immigration decisions are made in accordance with the law. But Wasserstrom says it's part of a gradual process by the Communist Party and its stewards in Hong Kong to rid the city's universities of critics. Each time something like this happens, it will make people think twice about applying for jobs, say, in, in Chinese history at a Hong Kong university, even if they're not doing work on Tiananmen as explicitly. A few months ago, Rowena Hu suspected bad news might be coming, so she asked her students and friends to help pack up her books. In August, a moving company delivered them to her in Austin. When the driver left, I cried. I probably, I hope my neighbors wouldn't think I was crazy. I cried really loud. I, I collapsed. I was thinking, like, this is it. All my connection is now in these boxes. For Hu, being a historian was always personal and political. She says she'll keep teaching, even if she's now become one of the exiles that she studies. John Ruwich, NPR News. Last week, Amazon announced a new benefit to its Prime members, a discounted subscription to One Medical. The tech giant closed its deal to buy the boutique primary healthcare chain in February, spending nearly $4 billion. Amazon isn't alone in beefing up its healthcare business either. Pharmacies like CVS have minute clinics, and retail chains like Walmart are also rolling out similar practices. These ventures are often billed as ways to close the gaps in access to care. But these expansions are expensive and don't get at the underlying shortage of doctors. So how much can they really help? Forbes senior contributor Bruce Japson has covered the business of healthcare for decades and he joins us now. Bruce, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I know this is a big question to start with, but can you give us a brief overview of how the business of getting care has changed in recent years? Health insurance companies, they are the folks that pay for care. But what has changed in probably the last decade is health insurance companies 
have been buying and have been also becoming providers of medical care. So let's just take CVS as one example. A few years ago, they bought Aetna, which is the nation's third largest health insurance company. Well, they want to have the Aetna members use their drugstore chains. So CVS was probably the leader in saying, hey, you know what? Amazon is kind of eating our lunch as a retailer. We got this 20% of our store that is emptying. We have to find a way to fill it with services. So they've been filling what used to be the not-so-used part of their stores with healthcare services. Who's most likely to use the service from Amazon? People who are younger... They just kind of want their care and they want it right away and they don't really care who gives it to them as long as they get the care. So when Amazon's buying One Medical, One Medical has virtual care for sure in all 50 states, but Amazon also has over 200 clinics now and I think they're going to start expanding services. And then you have CVS and Walgreens doing more and more healthcare services in their stores. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, it has been a success. Most Americans got their COVID vaccinations at drugstores. You wouldn't have even been able to do that five years ago. You know, these ventures buying these services um, for, you know, Amazon and what have you, they cost billions of dollars. So, I mean, is this a gamble for these companies? That's a great question, and yes, it is. I've been writing about healthcare a long time. If you have your own business and you're a physician and somebody buys your practice, you're not going to work as hard. You're just not. You will go to work for somebody and you'll be nine to five, six to eight. And so historically, when physician practices sell to larger health systems, they make the assumption that the doctor is going to bring in a lot of tests and procedures and revenue. But then what ends up happening is that the productivity of the physician falls off. What CVS and Walgreens and Amazon and Walmart are offering is saying, hey, we have customers. We know that they'll come here for healthcare services and they will come to see you. And oh, by the way, we have information systems and relationships with health insurance companies and all sorts of stuff like that that will make it easier on you if you come to work for us. That remains to be seen if that's going to work because it's a huge amount of money. And, and let me just say this, Village MD, which Walgreens bought, a startup, they have doctor practices. They're rolling out hundreds of doctor practices, um, excuse me, clinics that they're attaching to Walgreens across the country. One medical, as we talked about, is, is the Amazon deal. Neither of those companies made money. Well, I mean, as, as we're talking about this, I mean, we're, we're talking about this because these are businesses. This, this They are looking at the bottom line. What happens if they can't turn a satisfying profit in healthcare? Yeah, you're seeing that now. I think that these entities, they close stores all the time. You know, if there's a neighborhood where there's a store that's underperforming, they will close them. And, you know, they have great intentions, but they will hopefully be very careful when they open these stores and move into markets where they think they can be a success. Because if they're not, and the community starts to use them, but maybe not as much as Walgreens and CVS and company want, there could be a situation where they would pull out. 
That's Forbes senior contributor and healthcare writer Bruce Japson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And just to note, Amazon is one of NPR's financial supporters. to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Courts across the country are still catching up on criminal prosecutions that were ground to a halt during the pandemic. That led to overcrowding in the nation's jails where some defendants have been waiting, sometimes for years, for their day in court. In Atlanta's Fulton County Jail, the overcrowding has meant death. As Sarah Callis of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports, that has leaders and activists scrambling for a solution. In September, 10 days after Samuel Lawrence died in the Fulton County Jail, his father and supporters rallied in front of the county courthouse. No justice? No peace! No justice? No peace! Frank Richardson wanted justice for his son, who had been in the jail for eight months awaiting trial on a second-degree arson charge. Officials say Lawrence was murdered by his cellmate. A few days later, another inmate died. But this is a situation that I never see my son again. And he's been taken away from me, and no man wants to bury his son. Before he died, his son Lawrence had written a letter to federal officials alleging violent physical abuse by jail staff and improper psychiatric treatment. Ten people have died this year in the Fulton County Jail. Activists like Basil Jupiter have long pushed for an end to cash bail to ease the overcrowding at the jail. It's the same jail where former President Donald Trump was booked in August. You know, not everybody's Donald Trump who can just go in and out. So many people who can't afford bail can be immediately freed. The sheriff's office acknowledged the overcrowding and staff shortages. And the U.S. Justice Department has been investigating. Now, a special study committee of state senators is also looking into the problem. Jails have become the dumping ground for the mentally ill. That's Tate McCotter with the National Institute for Jail Operations. More than 50% of Fulton's jail population is being treated for mental health conditions. So, McCotter asked state senators to imagine it's your first day as a corrections officer, and it's chaos. And by the way, I'm 19 years old. We have some agencies now that can't hire, and they're, they're hiring 18-year-olds. He says it's a tough job for little money. The Fulton County Jail was originally built to house around 1,000 detainees. As Fulton County Court still plays catch-up on COVID backlog, at times the jail has housed three times as many. It's currently double its original capacity. Several of the inmates are represented by criminal defense attorney Jason Sheffield. He's grown frustrated with the court system's backlog. Like thousands and thousands of people waiting at a train station with a train there and already full, these people are just standing and waiting to get in line to get on the train. 
but then that train is not even leaving the station. And that became the crisis. To ease overcrowding, the sheriff wanted to move some detainees to Mississippi, but a court nixed the idea. Now he's asked other jails in Georgia for help, and some inmates have already been moved. The county wants to build a new jail, but it's still figuring out how to pay for it. Meanwhile, state lawmakers will continue to figure out if they can help the situation. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Callis in Atlanta. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Vineyard Wind has made its first payment of just over $2.5 million to the town of Nantucket as part of a so-called good neighbor agreement. The agreement means the town will support the massive offshore wind energy project. In exchange, Vineyard Wind will give Nantucket $16 million to mitigate the potential economic, cultural, and historical impact of the turbines. On Beacon Hill tomorrow afternoon, a joint legislative committee is set to hold a hybrid public hearing on ice cream. Lawmakers have proposed establishing the official ice cream flavor of the Commonwealth as cookies and cream. That flavor does have Massachusetts history. The groundbreaking premium ice cream shop Steve's began in Davis Square, Somerville in the 1970s, and the owner claimed to have originated the cookies and cream concept. It's 35 degrees in Boston Heights today in the mid-40s. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal, babson.edu slash gradprograms. And Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Maeve Higgins had a great idea for a hit nature show. It's called Bear With Me. You just do normal things, but there's a bear with you the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for this week's news quiz, where celebrity DJ Steve Aoki joins us as we do our normal things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just, Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The new novel by Gabriel Bump, The New Naturals, starts with a devastating loss. A pair of young Black academics are left bereft following the death of their infant daughter. 
The story charts their descent into grief and ultimately their journey underground, where they hope to create a utopia carved out of a hillside in western Massachusetts. But it's a project that doesn't go according to plan. Gabriel Bump teaches literature at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and his debut novel, Everywhere You Don't Belong, was named a New York Times Notable Book of 2020. He joins us now from New York. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for the introduction, Aisha. I'm really excited. Well, I'm, I'm glad for you to be on talking with us. So the opening of the book is very jarring. You have this couple, the mother, Rio, and the father, Gibraltar, they're dealing with the loss of their daughter. Can you talk to me about those two characters? Yeah, I guess like when I was writing this book and I was trying to figure out like what could make these people just really want to escape the world? Like what would be the thing that pushes them over the edge? And I imagine just what the worst thing that could happen, you know, in this way that writers sometimes do, right? Like think about the most dramatic action. It, it seemed like, though, even before the death of their baby, that they were already kind of trying to escape. They had moved out to, you know, moved away from the city. and Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I guess it's like the difference between someone in, you know, New York moving upstate because they're kind of sick of what's happening to the city or like feel kind of like the city's unaffordable, like just all these different reasons. And like taking that extra extreme step to say, okay, like we're living in the woods isn't enough. We're going to go underground. We are going to retreat totally from the world. And I know I can empathize with a lot, just especially now, just in maybe the past couple of years, it's felt like this too, but the world is just so overwhelming. Well, can I, can I ask you then, because a lot of the book is written, it's, it's almost like stream of consciousness. Um, there are all these different characters who aren't necessarily connected, but they're all searching for meaning. Talk to me about like your writing style. Like when I was reading it, you know, it felt like each chapter almost felt like a story unto itself. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to like really focus on these characters at uh, like an emotional level. I feel like it's a very emotional book, even though there's this like grand experiment happening. Like it's really personal. And even like the writing felt really personal. Because like when I started writing this book, I was kind of going through a hard time in my personal life. Uh, was just feeling like kind of down and out. You know, like none of my characters are me, but this character bounced like this young man that just can't seem to set his foot right in the world. Like nothing seems to go his way. That's like how I felt, you know? And, and so in those, I guess, like vignettes, like these maybe just stories unto themselves, it's okay, here are these people in one specific moment on their journey. How are they coping and where are they moving towards? You said you felt some similarities with Bounce. I, I just wonder that, you know, you, your debut novel was named a New York Times notable book. Like, wh why would you feel like things weren't going right for you? Uh, yeah, well, so I started writing this book before my first book came okay, out. Okay, okay, that <laughs> yeah. makes more sense. Okay, so you were more, so you didn't know you where you was going. Okay. No, man, and before that, like, and that's why I'm kind of feeling more just relaxed with this mm -hmm. second book, like just 
feeling uh, I don't like Zen or something because like before that first book comes out, it really does feel like your whole life is riding on this thing. You know, I mean, this story um, is set up against the backdrop of kind of chaos in the U.S. and chaos around the world. How much were you influenced by current events? Well, yeah, I mean, and it felt like in 2018 when I started writing this, it just felt like the world wasn't in the right spot. Like everything was just feeling kind of like off the rails. And this was before the pandemic. So you were feeling this way before, <laughs> before, before. This is like before, this is before the pandemic. This is before January 6th. This is before the George Floyd like protests and uprising. Certainly before our two kind of like large scale wars happening like simultaneously in the world. And uh, the lesson I learned from that hard time like five years ago I'm married now, so I'm leaning a lot on my wife, you know, not just my immediate family, but like her immediate family. Like we're all kind of like finding comfort in each other and it helps, you know, it does make the world feel less chaotic. But I, I mean, I don't know, like when I think about change, uh, there's just so many different types of change that, that we experience. So I can use one from just my personal life. So this year, my wife and I experienced um, a like late-term uh, miscarriage with mm-hmm. our, our daughters at, at 20 weeks. I'm um, so sorry. No, no, thank you, thank you. And I mean, so my perception of, of change, and again, even as this book, so when I said like that Rio and Gibraltar, this husband and wife losing their daughter, like I wrote that five years ago just as this, you know, try and figure out what's the worst thing that could happen to people. And so it, en- it ended up happening to my wife and I, right? And we were, like, recently married, and we're so excited. Like, our, our life was changing in, like, the most beautiful way possible. And then just one day, it changes in the worst way imaginable. And I think that, like, how I've come to accept all different kinds of change, both personal and societal, is by welcoming change in this way, you know, like trying to keep myself and those around me solid and just saying, okay, whatever comes, we're going to be ready for it. We're going to love each other. We're going to deal with it. Is that the utopia then you think that these characters in the book are really looking for? Is it the connection with each other? Yeah, I think that that's what they end up finding, right? I don't know if... um, you know, the initial plan was different. And I think that what ends up being most important is this utopia they find in each other. That's Gabriel Bump, whose new novel, The New Naturals, is out this week. Thank you so much for being with us. All right. Thank you so much, Aisha. There haven't been any primary debates held by the Democratic National Committee, so maybe you haven't heard a lot about those challenging President Biden within his party. But long-shot candidates like Dean Phillips, the congressman from Minnesota, could pose real problems for Biden's re-election bid. Hear that story on All Things Considered later today. Listen to your favorite public radio station on your smartphone's web browser, smart speaker, or radio. Life as we know can get tough. 
relationships end, hearts break, and it can take a lot to process all of that. Singer-songwriter Angie McMahon is no stranger to that. Her debut album, Salt, explored what it means to feel and the connection with others that comes with that. In McMahon's new album, Light, Dark, Light Again, she's turning inward and carving a path towards rediscovery. I might be proud of me than I ever have been. Angie McMahon joins us from Melbourne, Australia. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm I'm wondering when this process of digging deep and sorting through all of these feelings began, um, because it doesn't sound like an album, like you cranked out in like a two-week frenzy. Like, how did you go (laughs) from processing emotions to to music? Yeah, I think it's something that I've always done. And in between my first record and this record, there was, yeah, like a four-year gap. And in that time, I definitely had a bit of a life crisis. I experienced like the lowest low that I've ever hit. And I I knew that I would use songs to find my way out of it. So you say you use the music to kind of process what you're going through and, and this transformative period in your life, it included a breakup. How did you translate it? <laughs> and then I guess, was there a song that came to you first? There's a song called Fish on the record, which was one of the first ones that I wrote. I think what was transforming in me as a writer at that time was that I wasn't feeling like I wanted to write about other people so much or blame my hurt on other people. I was more leaning into looking at myself and my own behavior. And I think that sort of set the scene for the rest of the writing process. Well, let's talk about the first track, Saturn Returning, which, I mean, that one did sound a bit like mournful to me, like, you know, kind of thinking about what's lost, but also like a a, a celebration and, you know, kind of a rallying cry to live. Yeah, well, it is both those things. It's like, it's a morning track and it's also a way to elevate myself. Like, it felt really authentic, like, to be letting go of pain and figuring out how to do that by really looking at it and acknowledging it. And I did a lot of it through, like, a newfound love for nature, I guess, and, like, a a new, like, sort of spiritual understanding of the wisdom of nature and how... You know, the waves are always going in and out and the trees are always growing. You don't know which way they're going to grow, but they're still beautiful. You know, all these like (laughs) kind of corny things that were really helpful to me. You know, there is this quiet feeling to some of this album, like, uh, you know, a stillness. And as you talked about nature sounds, you know, running water, birds, and then kind of a piano or guitar sort of weaves itself in there. 
you spend a lot of time outdoors while you were writing these songs? Yeah, I did. I mean, I had a garden and I was lying in the garden a lot of the time, just staring at the sky. <laughs> and I was, I mean, it sounds silly. It sounds so simple to say it out loud, but I was just coming to understand that those things like bird sound and water sounds, like they're always there. They're like this constant color that is always there if you look for it. And there was something really kind of inspiring and transcendent in that for me. I just, I, I guess I was feeling less distracted and more present. And I love them and they felt like a door back into music and a portal back to life. line in your song letting go where you have that mantra it's okay to make uh, mistakes and it and it seems like that was a moment where you were really letting go was it through the making of the song that you arrived at that yeah totally it was it was a hard song to finish because I really loved the chorus. I had the chorus for a long time before I had the rest of the song and I couldn't figure out where the song was meant to go. I was like completely stumped and I guess I just started like singing what I needed to hear um, without the intention that that would be what the song was. You know, it kind of felt corny as I was singing it out and so that's why it kind of turned into, you know, yelling that line over and over because I just needed that. Yeah, it was just like one of the beautiful moments of surrendering to like exactly what I needed at the time. This is an album that's very, it's thoughtful. It's 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 very it's it's crafted and it, you know with deep meaning and all these things. It, it, is there any part of you that after this maybe wants to just like make a a dance album or something that's <laughs> just not as you know. I mean, although I guess I've talked to people who make dance albums, they say that they're very deep as well. But you know, you know what I mean. Just something in a totally different direction. I totally do want to do that. I found in the last couple of years for the first time in my life, how important it is to get out of my head and into my body and stop intellectualizing everything. And I started dancing and running to like straight up pop music and it was so healing. And yeah, that is one of my visions is just to lean into like the physical energetic world of music and um, explore that a little bit more as well. That's Angie McMahon. Her new album, Light, Dark, Light Again, is out now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So lovely to talk to you. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Learn more about the music and artists you hear on NPR and discover new music by visiting npr.org music. There you can also watch a Tiny Desk concert or get an exclusive first listen of new music.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Have a wonderful Sunday. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. The Patriots are playing the Colts this morning in Frankfurt, Germany. The Colts are ahead 7-3 in the first quarter. It's 35 degrees in Boston, highs today in the mid-40s. Lows overnight dropping to the mid-20s. Increasing clouds tomorrow. Monday's temperatures in the mid-40s. WBUR supporters include the Boston Philharmonic. Benjamin Zander leads Shostakovich, Britain, and Bartok with pianist Benjamin Hockman. November 17th at Symphony Hall, bostonphil.org. The United Auto Workers New Deal means more money for its members. But what is the union hearing from auto workers who aren't covered by the new contracts? Yeah, how it's not fair that we're getting this, but they're not. Well, join the union. The next goal, union organizing at more plants. Will they succeed? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.